Dear Heavenly Father, Father, I marvel at the power of the Holy Spirit to draw men and women from so many different walks of life, different places, different uh, degrees of experience in their walk. Uh, Father, in so many ways we are so much not alike, but yet by the power of your Spirit we have been made one. We are drawn together with a common purpose, a common love for a Lord who has saved us all through grace. Father, that itself is a blessing, for without that work of the Spirit, we would be alone and without God in this world. But Father, in your mercy and grace, you brought us here tonight to study your magnificent words spoken to the prophet Isaiah and written for our benefit. We give you great, all the praise and glory, Father, for assembling us for this most important work. Father, we remember our, the needs of the body, for you ask us to do that and raise them up to you. And tonight you've heard from many in the room, Father, and perhaps others who have not voiced their needs, but you know them. And for Christian as well, who we named Father, he has uh, begun his school year along with many other children, I'm sure, in this room, uh, parents of this, in this room. And we ask, Father, that Christian's uh, school year would be successful, that he would be uh, taught and encouraged and strengthened by his instructors, and that he would grow in wisdom, not only in the terms of what the world may offer, Father, as important as it is, but also in terms of his knowledge and love for you. We thank you, Father, that uh, Wayside has offered us the opportunity to study in this building and ask, Father, that we would find much fruit over the months to come as we study, knowing that the Holy Spirit, Father, is in control of all we do and is ultimately the teacher in this room. We yield to him and praise your name in the name of Jesus. Amen. I hope you're excited about Isaiah. Uh, you know, I guess you could probably find a lot of people in this world who, if they were given the opportunity to come study a book of the Bible, Isaiah would not rank in the top ten. And, and really, just out of ignorance or fear or trepidation over what might be required to study a book like Isaiah, if it's any consolation, uh, I'll try to do the heavy lifting and bring to you what God reveals to me and then in the Holy Spirit's guidance, each of us hearing from Him individually, together we'll come to the truth. But the intent is to really reveal to you what God has placed in His book. I'm fond of saying that nothing in the Bible was written to confuse you. We can be confused, but it's not because God intends that to be the outcome. I believe it's, it's really more a function of effort, devotion to the task, and in some cases a maturing process which we all have to go through. But that's why we're here. I hope you're excited because I absolutely guarantee you, if it doesn't start tonight, it'll happen sooner or later, you're going to learn something you don't know. Uh, I have already, and it's not going to take much more time for that to be true for everyone in this room, I hope. And in that, there should be some excitement because Isaiah is easily the most important prophetic book of the Old Testament. Some call it the most important book of the Old Testament, for the simple fact that it's one of the few books of the Bible that by itself can teach virtually all that we can know concerning God's plan for his creation, certainly for Israel. And in Israel, our future is also maintained. The book itself is a work of superlatives. And I'm going to take a little bit of time as we open today to introduce the book and the man Isaiah because I think the background will be essential to understanding his purpose in writing and some of what we're going to study even tonight and in the weeks to come. So if, you'll, if you're taking notes, this is a good kind of note-taking material. You may refer back to it from time to time. But in any case, uh, give some thought here to what, why Isaiah is important. I said already it's a work of superlatives. Let me just list a few. In terms of the language in the book, Isaiah was a master of the Hebrew language. He is without peer in the Old Testament from the point of view of his writing. He, his writing demonstrates an unparalleled command of the Hebrew language. Isaiah, by the way, wrote a biography of King Uzziah, though we don't have it anymore. No one, it's not available. It's been talked about in other works. So he was a, an accomplished writer all part from Scripture. He uses one of the widest vocabularies in Hebrew, frequently reverts to poetic forms of language. A lot of, Hebrew, a lot of Isaiah is actually poetic. He uses a lot of extended doublets, and that's simply describing repetition of truth using consecutive steps or consecutive statements. To put it in more contemporary terms, he's the Shakespeare of Hebrew. Now, it's lost sometimes in translation, obviously. And yet, much of what you're going to read, you'll find this as we go through the book, you will stumble upon verses now and again that you know. You don't remember where you learned them or why you know them or why they're familiar, but they'll be familiar. 
Because, like Shakespeare, so much of what he wrote has found its way not only into New Testament biblical teaching, meaning quotations from New Testament writers, but just into everyday vernacular. People quote out of Isaiah, not knowing who they're speaking of, of course. In terms of breadth, Isaiah is the third longest work in the Bible. We were playing this game before this class started today. What are the two that are ahead of it in terms of uh, longest works in the Bible? Psalms is number one. Jeremiah. But after those two, you have Isaiah. Isaiah alone describes his writing as a vision. Most prophets would say they heard the word. The word of the Lord came to the prophet so-and-so. Isaiah uniquely describes himself as the receiver of a vision. The Hebrew name for the book is the vision of Isaiah. The Jews often took the first few words of a book and made it the name. And you'll notice in verse 1, it begins with the vision of Isaiah. You can say, honestly, he saw the future and wrote about it. In terms of depth, Isaiah provides more insights on the coming kingdom of the Messiah than any other book of the Bible, including Revelation. In fact, if you've been in the Revelation class that I've taught, or or really any Revelation class that goes at depth into the book, then you know that when the topic of the Millennial Kingdom, or the Messianic Kingdom as we may call it, when that topic comes up, you don't go to Revelation to learn about it, except perhaps to learn that it's a thousand years. You go to Isaiah primarily to learn about what is the millennial kingdom and what's going to happen when we get there. In the book of Isaiah, he addresses both past and future events from his day, revealing events over the course of that period of time that spans more human history than any book other than Genesis and Revelation. So he saw visions, he knew history and he saw visions that when you add them up, reveal that much human history. Just a tremendous amount of human history is revealed through his writing. I mean, I hope you're excited to study him for no reason except perhaps that God is going to reveal to you and I in this book the details of your future. And I don't mean in some kind of esoteric or oblique sense, something that's hard to understand. I'm talking about literally if God has walked in here through this book and offered to you a very clear, specific understanding of what your life will be like when you come back to reign on on earth with Christ. You would think, for the most part, any Christian who understands they have that kind of future awaiting them would be chomping at the bit for any detail, any nugget, any little you know, bit of information that would say when you die and you're in, Christ, in heaven with Christ and then on the day he returns, you come back and live on earth with him physically for a thousand years, Isaiah gives tremendous detail about what life will be like for us in those days. So here it is, ready for us. In terms of structure... Isaiah's organization closely mirrors the Bible as a whole, which is one of its greatest um, mysteries, but also one of its greatest features. And that structure is actually a testimony to God's sovereignty, because when you consider the fact that the book wasn't, the Bible itself wasn't canonized in the way we see it now until two to three hundred years after the, the resurrection of Christ on earth, and yet Isaiah, having been written a good 640 years prior to that, already contains in it the structure that presupposes what the canon would look like in its future day. You see God's work through Isaiah to develop his writing in such a way that it could picture or in many ways reflect what the Bible itself shows in structure. What do I mean? Well, for example, 66 chapters in Isaiah, 66 books in the canon we call Scripture. But more than that, chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah carry a theme, an integrated theme, which closely matches the general storyline of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is 39 books. And then chapters 40 through 66 of Isaiah carry a wholly different theme. In fact, in many circles in the past, Isaiah was often referred to as first and second Isaiah because the distinction is so strong. And those later chapters, 40 through 66, that's 27 chapters. There's 27 books in the New Testament. So not surprisingly, and I find this very ironic and humorous at the same time, many Christians will recognize the content of many of those later chapters in what we would call Second Isaiah, just as many Christians are very familiar with the New Testament. And similarly, many Christians have no awareness whatsoever of the contents of First Isaiah, just as, unfortunately, many Christians are not terribly familiar with the Old Testament. In terms of theology... I mean, the book is simply profound. Uh, In some respects, you could say Isaiah is the Romans of the Old Testament. He presents a rich tapestry of biblical concepts. 
but he focuses on four primary doctrines which will help guide us as we study the book. One is the sovereignty of God. Secondly, the sinfulness of man and of the world. Third, the inevitability of judgment in the face of an offended deity. And then finally, coming redemption. Perhaps most importantly, of the, of the things he chose to focus on theologically, he presents the Messiah with greater insight and detail than any other book, save perhaps Psalms. And as such, that means he had the best understanding of what the coming Messiah was to be, that he was of a certain kind of man who would have a certain kind of ministry and come to a certain end. More than probably any Old Testament prophet, Isaiah knew what was coming. His entire book is strongly, strongly eschatological, meaning uh, focused on end times. In fact, it won't take long. We won't touch it tonight, but next week we're already looking at the Millennial Kingdom because it comes up in chapter 2. So it won't take us long to get into that kind of material. Isaiah, as a man now moving to the man himself, is a fascinating study all by himself. He, just to get the details out, he lived from about 740 B.C. to about 681, give or take. He wrote the, books in the, very last, the book of Isaiah in the very last years of his life. He lived in Jerusalem. And he prophesied during the reign of four kings in Judah. Now, by the time he was born, the nation of Israel was already in two groups. Israel was the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom of Judah was where Jerusalem was, of course, and that's where he lived. So this is after Solomon's kingdom had split. In fact, just to start the book, look at verse 1. He describes the beginning of his book, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So in that first verse, he identifies who he is, of course. He identifies that he is going to speak to and about the southern kingdom. For that's where he was sent to prophesy. And during the reign of these four kings, there is tradition that says he was the brother to King Amaziah, who was the king that preceded Uzziah, the first of those four. His father was the brother, and that would have made him of royal descent, though not in the line to inherit the throne. When he began his ministry under King Uzziah, Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms, when you added them together, they had more command of land than ever David or Solomon had. So he lived at the beginning of his ministry at the absolute height of Jewish power historically. Now think of it. Put yourself in that moment, not knowing the future from the point of view of a Jew in that day. You're living in the superpower of their world. And all they have seen in their past is a steady rise to this point. And in human terms, then, it would seem, from a human's point of view, that Jewish authority and power was unquestionable and was only likely to grow greater from that point forward. I mean, what else would you assume, having only seen it grow up to this point? That enabled the Jews of Isaiah's day to rest in a prideful belief that they were achieving, by their earthly success, all of what God had offered them through the promises he made in the Old Covenant. So, in other words, they saw in the world around them what they believed was the manifestation of God's promises to be a provider and a blessing to the nation of Israel. I mean, this reliance on self and on prideful uh, boasting over power that they had obtained in their own strength ultimately was their destruction, as Isaiah himself will point out prophetically. Now, does that sound like any other world power is past or present? But it is an interesting parallel, to say the very least, though we are not Israel, and I'm not implying we are, but at the same time, there is an interesting parallel there. Now, looking back, we can actually see from where we know now things, how things transpired from Isaiah's day, that his time was actually at a perfect juncture in history. He lived at a transition point between the Old Testament and law and what was coming in the New Covenant was not yet there, but was coming. He lived at the point where God was getting ready to swing the gate. Now, God didn't swing it in his day, literally in the sense that the Messiah did not arrive, but the prophecies of the Messiah went to a new level with a new ins uh, uh, point of view, with a new insistence, and they came in conjunction with a, com uh, a promise to judge the sin of the nation of Israel under the old. So there was a distinct putting the old to its final point of judgment, so that the new could come on the scene. And I'll talk extensively about that tonight. Ed Young said of Isaiah's time, as I was doing a little research, he said this, Isaiah exercised his prophetic ministry at a time of unique significance, a time in which it was of utmost importance to realize 
that salvation could not be obtained by reliance upon man, but only from God himself. For Israel, it was the central or pivotal, pivotal point of history between Moses and Christ. The old world was passing and an entirely new order of things was beginning to make its appearance. Where would Israel stand in their new world? Would she be the true theocracy, the light to lighten the Gentiles, or would she fall into the shadow by turning for help to the nations which were about her? That's how he put it. Uh, he had a wife called a prophetess, but we think that probably just means being married to a prophet made you a prophetess. Didn't mean she necessarily had anything to say herself uh, in terms of prophecy. They had two sons. The sons' names had prophetic meaning. Uh, one meant the prey hastens, and the other one meant remnant, both of which are significant to his ministry. Here's something interesting. In chapter 20, which we'll study as we get there, probably what, a couple weeks? Uh, chapter 20, Isaiah is told by God to walk naked and barefoot for three years in Israel, which he does. And it's done so as to present a picture to not Israel, but Egypt and Cush, that they would themselves be led naked into captivity by Assyria, which happened. He was eventually martyred, tradition says, by King Manasseh, who is not one of the four kings he prophesied during. It's the fifth one. His ministry was done by the time uh, King Manasseh came in power. And the tradition says that he was fleeing from Manasseh, who was trying to kill him, and he hid himself in the hollowed-out uh, log of a tree. So he crawls in a log, crawls into a tree that's hollowed out. They find him in this place, and when they find him, they decide to execute him simply by sawing the tree in half to include him. That's where you see in Hebrews 11 a statement of uh, prophets who were sawn in two. It's, a belie it's believed to be a reference to Isaiah. Now we're going to talk a little eschatology for a moment. Israel was at the brink, and Isaiah lived during this time on a period we now understand is called the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles. This is a period of judgment for Israel. Uh, it was a time uh, described by Daniel later in chapters 2, 7, and 9. If you know Daniel, you know 2 is the study of the statue, and 7 is the study of the beasts, and uh, 9 is his prophetic look forward to a day of destruction for Israel and of a coming prince. Well, those pictures that Daniel gave later are of this period of time of judgment for Israel, which was about to happen, not in Isaiah's day, but Isaiah lived just on the brink of it, just on the brink of this times of the Gentiles. Jesus later defines these times in Luke, 7, in Luke chapter 17. What is the time of the Gentiles? It is a time when the Jews find their beloved city of Jerusalem trampled under by Gentile oppressors. It began with Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Jerusalem when he took the southern kingdom captive. It continues until this day. And Jesus, in his own statements regarding this time, declared, and Daniel confirmed in chapter 9, and in chapter 7, and in chapter 2, that this time will continue until Jesus returns to set up his kingdom on earth. So the times of the Gentiles is a period of time in which Israel finds itself outside its city and land, not in peace, not commanding that land as they did prior, but rather that city is trampled under by Gentiles. And that continues till today. Even though Israel is a nation again and has some kind of partial control, clearly they cannot go to the city of Jerusalem and do whatever they want. They cannot take over their mount. They cannot do what they prefer to do. They are still seeing their city and, their and the Temple Mount trampled under, if you will, under control of, Gentiles. And Jesus said that time would continue, and Daniel said it would continue until his own return, until Jesus' return. So it, what you see in Isaiah is him talking to a nation who is about to find themselves falling into this time of judgment that is still ongoing today, that has gone through several phases. He speaks of this coming judgment frequently, and at the same time he gives more detail about the coming redemption when this time ends than any other prophet in the Old Testament. All right, we're ready to start the verses. Let's just look at the structure of the book one last moment as we enter into chapter 1. Isaiah's book, as I've said already, is carefully structured, and that structure is very important in understanding what he's talking about. There is a Western style of teaching. By Western, I mean it's Greek-influenced. It's what you and I grew up in in the West today. It goes all the way back to Alexandrian times, okay? The Western style of teaching is linear, meaning 
I teach an element, which then leads to a larger element, to another element, to another element. I build on what you've already been taught. I move in a single direction away from simplicity toward complexity. If I ever stop and go back and do it again, you get annoyed. People hate it when someone repeats things. People hate it when somebody repeats things, right? You just naturally, the Western ear hears that and goes, okay, I got it, I got it. That's not an Eastern style of teaching. Eastern meaning to include Palestinian lands uh, then and today. And as a Hebrew writer, as well as anybody else who wrote in the Old Testament, they wrote in an Eastern style, which means the Eastern style is to teach the whole picture, the whole lesson from front to back over and over and over. And each time I circle back through it, I come at it with a slightly different perspective, slightly different take, so that I'm reinforcing the truth but I'm doing it in a circular fashion, and that's what they look for. In fact, that's why you see things repeated in Scripture a lot, in threes. You'll read a statement, and then a few verses later, you read it again, and you're like, I got it. Why am I having to hear this again? The nature of teaching was circular. Isaiah does this in a very structured way, so that there are really about three or four, four probably major themes of the book that just keep coming up and up and up. But with each of these circling back times, you're going to get more detail or something new. So, to teach the book in a Western style, which I think is still necessary, I can't retrain your ears, I don't intend to try, uh, we're going to take it in a linear fashion as mo- much as we can. What we're going to do, though, as we get to these circling back moments is acknowledge them. Here we are again talking about this point, and then we'll look for the differences. Now, that's not to say we're going to skip anything. I'm just saying we won't, hopefully, drill down every time with the same way we may have approached it the first time. But, but what that means is the first time we're going to spend time on it. So, and what I'm leading here to is the structure will nas- naturally require that as we start the book, we will spend time understanding this circle, wherever it happens, so that in the future instances of the theme or of the topic, you're, you're ready for it. We're, we're able to go through it more efficiently. Make sense? Now, that, that implies two things. Patience in the beginning and a kind of disciplined approach to catching up if you miss a few nights, especially if you miss in the beginning of the course, because, frankly, it's just going to be a lot harder to follow later and get the richness of what we're talking about. So if you have a schedule problem, which is fine, you know we record these, that's the reason they're recorded, go out online and download it, or let me know if you don't have the ability, and I'll provide a CD. But we want you to stay in the the study as much as you can. First structure we're going to announce here. There's five chapters to begin the book, which set up the themes for the rest of the book. You'll notice there's a scene in chapter 6 that's usually pretty well known. It's the scene where you see Isaiah receiving his vision. That's the same, that's that famous moment where he, he says, who will go, Lord, send me, and you know, his tongue is touched with the coals, and the, well, 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 we'll get there. But chapter 6, you would think, would start the book. I mean, after all, that's where he started getting his visions. He tells the story of how he became a prophet. Well, he gets there, but he waits until he's set up the themes of the book. So chapters 1 through 5 give us a chance to really cover everything that the book is going to address, at least at some level. So that's why I said, by next week, we're talking eschatology. It won't take long. Look with me at the first two verses. Chapter 1 in itself is a bit of a mini-summary of the book. And it sets up the rest of the five. So verses 2 and 3 simply give us an opening here. Isaiah, after introducing himself in verse 1, in verse 2 says, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Now, why are we going to pause after just such a short introduction? Well, there's something really big happening in that first verse. Isaiah's book starts with this call to the heavens and earth to hear the Lord speaking about Israel. Now, we've already established who's he talking to, who's his audience. We said there were two entities, right? Within the nation as it stands today, there's the northern kingdom and the southern. He's a prophet to the southern kingdom, which is called Judah in contrast to Israel. But yet he says here in verse 3, but Israel does not, does not know me. Would you think he means the northern kingdom then? You would normally, and I agree, that would be the first thought. But he is, as he's already stated in verse 1, speaking to and about Judah and Jerusalem. He already said that. So when he uses the term Israel now, it's understood to mean the true Israel, the remnant. Keep in mind that even though there was this northern kingdom that called itself Israel, it wasn't Israel. 
It set up its temple in a city outside of Jerusalem. It had a false priesthood. It had taken the law and actually changed it to suit its own purposes. It was not Israel. The northern kingdom were Jewish by descent. They were of Israelites, yes, but they weren't the true Israel spiritually any longer. God did never claim them as part of his uh, people. Judah was the true remnant. It had Jerusalem. It was still following the Davidic line of kings. The ones in the north split off and were not true Israel any longer. So that's why he can say the word Israel, but, you, but mean the southern kingdom. Now, the scene here opens up in a very curious way, and this is why I said a moment ago, this is a, a kind of an interesting opening. If you've studied with me before, you know that we've talked here about gates in walled cities being a courtroom. A court was usually held in the gate of the city, a gate meaning a chambered room built into the wall so that people living outside the city could come in and do business with the city, and yet the city didn't have to open its doors and let just anyone in. So it was like an antechamber to the city. He's speaking here about a moment in such a room. Now, how do I know that? Well, in a place like that where you would have a court held, there would be witnesses called to a court to be uh, in, in place to give testimony in the matter of before the court. And that's what God is doing here. He's called the earth and the heavens as witnesses against Israel into a courtroom, which means we're standing here at the beginning of an indictment or a court proceeding where Israel's on trial God is the prosecutor, and you have these witnesses who stand, in a sense, as jury against Israel. What would Israel's crime be, if I'm right, that we're sitting here in a courtroom? What legal claim could God make against the nation of Israel? What is the statute that they would have violated? The Old Covenant, the law. The Mosaic law is the law that God is now about to adjudicate against Israel. When the covenant was inaugurated with Israel, God gave stipulations to the nation for their obedience, and if they were obedient, came blessings from that obedience. But likewise, if they were disobedient to the terms of that covenant, there would be consequences for their disobedience. If you have your Bible, turn to Deuteronomy, which is the last of the five, first five books of the Bible, which is where the law itself is legally codified. Remember, the word Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law, because in Deuteronomy, the law is restated. What's different between it and the prior books of the Pentateuch or of the Torah what makes Deuteronomy different from those is that the laws that had been pro given out in all those previous books are packaged together in the form of a legal document or a covenant in Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is the formal giving of the document to the nation of Israel through Moses and their formal agreement to it. Go to chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, verse 10. This is Moses speaking to the nation. He says, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. Chapter 4, verse 10. When the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I might let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, that they may teach their children, and that they may teach their children. You came near, and you stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. And then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you the statutes and the judgments, that you might perform them in the land where you're going to possess it. Now, jump to verse 23. So, Moses goes on, So, watch yourselves, that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. Now, later, one last quick two-verse patch piece out of Deuteronomy. Jump to Deuteronomy 31. Now, you notice we started at the beginning of Deuteronomy. Now we're jumping to the end. 
So this is at the very end of that giving of the law a second time, when it's being finalized with the nation. He creates an assembly, a solemn moment, Moses does. Verse 28 of chapter 31. And he says to the people, he says, Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their hearing, and call the heavens and the earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will act corruptly and turn from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days. For you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger with the work of your hands. But you notice the key point that I was trying to make through those verses, right? Among other things which we will bring up later, you notice, I hope, the key comment in there. In both cases, at the beginning and then again at the end, He calls to witness against them the heavens and the earth. But did you notice in both cases, he uses that phrase in conjunction with a prophecy that they're going to mess up. So it's almost as if he's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, before we go any further, uh, heavens, earth, could you come here for a second? Look, these guys are going to get this wrong. I need you to be watching this so that when we have to call them to account for it later, you'll remember they signed it here and now. It's not with this eye toward like as a wedding. Let's witness this glorious, wonderful moment so we can all remember it happened. It's almost with this eye toward the future problems that are going to happen. And here we go at the beginning of Isaiah with God himself calling to these same two witnesses, now it's time to come and reckon with Israel over their failures under this covenant. So he sets up this great indictment, continuing in Isaiah verse 2. He says, sons, I have reared, but they revolted. Now by rearing up sons here, God's obviously talking about his establishment of the nation. He made them who they are. And they've revolted against him, against his authority. And then Isaiah turns to one of his favorite techniques, literary techniques. He'll use this a lot. Actually, I love this about Isaiah. Sarcasm. He's fantastic with sarcasm. In fact, much like Shakespeare. He's very good with irony and sarcasm. He's great with it. Only when Isaiah is speaking sarcastically to you in the name of the Lord, that's not a good thing. All right? Nothing good about it. He says, Though an ox or a lowly donkey knows its master, or in the case of the donkey, its place of rest. So you see the two pictures there. I know my owner, I know my place of rest. And by the way, these animals were uniformly considered the dumbest animals in the farm. Long-time verse-by-verse ministry students in this room will already understand this. If I were to rewrite this verse today, I would change the kind of animal that's being used here. And of course, you all can tell me exactly which animal I would use in place of it. Which one? The poodle. So, in clay, I would say, even a poodle, and of course, in my case, this wouldn't work. Because even in my case, a poodle doesn't do what he's supposed to do. But generally, verse... Four, he says, you guys aren't even as good as ox and donkey when it comes to following your master. Look where he goes, verses 4 through 6. He says, alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. You have abandoned the Lord. They have despised, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, raw wounds, nothing not pressed out or bandaged, not not softened with oil. He begins to detail the offenses of Israel. Now, I'm not going to belabor some of this. The imagery is just intended to be that, an image, a picture of, of what it means that this nation has revolted in the way they have. He begins a couple of points here. He begins in verse 4 with, alas. That work in, in Hebrew, that word in Hebrew, is oi. <laughs> Boy, that, that's what he said. But it literally means woe. Now, alas is equally good translation, of course, but woe here. He's saying woe to them. Woe, and then sinful nation. Nation's an interesting word. It's goy, which is the word for Gentile nation. So he's comparing them to a Gentile nation. They're just as bad as Gentiles at this point. Oh, you sinful Gentiles, is what he's just said. Weighed down by your evil deeds, children of evil rather than children of God. And you can just see him laying on, and I don't, again, I don't want to necessarily take each line by line. You can see them for yourself. But he lays out here their rebellion in all its detail, comparing them eventually here to the, the body that's sick. Let me give you an example of what he's talking about. You know, it's easy for us to just describe it, but it'd be much easier to understand it if we put it into specific terms. What are these people doing that has made God so upset at them? Now, I'm not going to detail the history of it, because it really started back with the golden calf, Right? The irony is that while Moses is carrying down the laws of the Ten Commandments, he finds them already breaking most of them when he gets to the bottom of the mountain. So that started right away. But if you think of it probably more in Isaiah's day, I'm going to take you to a scene out of Second Kings, just briefly, that describes what King Manasseh was doing. This is the king that killed him. 
King Manasseh, chapter 21 of 2 Kings, verse 1. Let me just read you a few verses about him. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in, in, Judah, in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hebzabah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he built, rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done. He worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft and used divination, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He goes on to talk about the fact that he killed many innocents, which probably refers to Isaiah as well. And he's just one, right? You go study Ahab and Jezebel. You go study uh, many of the other evil kings of the north or south. I mean, he just goes on and on like this. These people, I mean, it's not a matter of them making little mistakes here and there. It's about completely turning from the Lord that saved them as a nation and putting up in his place pagan and, and witchcraft and, and worldly sources of, of worship and paying homage to that. And then, of course, along the way, they sacrifice children at one point in time. They have uh, uh, take on the gods of the, of the surrounding nations. They had prostitutes performing in the temple. One thing after another. They couldn't figure out how to be worse than they were. That's the situation that is, Isaiah is describing when he says in verse 5, and he, it's a rhetorical question, he says, where do you go from here, Israel? Well, I mean, how much worse can you get? He says... Well, you know, he uses this analogy of a sick body. He describes it from head to sole, broken out in sores, totally a mess. Yeah, you know, he's saying to them, you know, what more are you planning to do? How much worse do you think I'm going to let you get? And in verse 7, he says, Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we'd be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. He says to the nation at this stage in the chapter, he says, your collective disobedience has left you already suffering. Did you not figure out the cause and effect? Now, what he's referring here specifically is the land at the time Isaiah wrote those words was suffering under war, because Assyria was a rising power in that day. In many ways, you can draw parallels to our contemporary times, at least in the last, say, 30 years. You have a superpower in the form of Israel. The two nations, let's say, as though they weren't aligned, they were not allies, together they formed a kind of centralist power in that part of the world. Now you have a north, north from them, the Assyrian nation rising to power. It came to power over a very brief period of time and didn't stay very long, historically speaking, but in its height, it commanded most of the world in that region. So uh, Assyria is starting to flex its muscles. So it's like a competing superpower. Not quite there yet, but it started to make little infiltrations into the north and into the south. And by the time this is being written, or at the time he's referring to here, there had been about 46 cities in Judah in the southern kingdom that had already been attacked by Assyria. And in the course of those attacks, they'd taken a few hundred Jews captive. So this is just an early stage at Assyria's attempts to undermine Jewish power. Verse 7 and 8 refer to those trials. You've got cities being burned. You've got land left desolate. You've got people in your fields you can't go occupying because you've got marauders coming in and taking over the land. Don't you see the point? You think yourself strong. God's already showing the, the cracks in the seams. He's already starting to show how your power is going to wane. And that mention of survivors in verse 9 Actually, the word in Hebrew is sarid, and it means remnant, literally. That raises a concept that we're going to explore at length in Isaiah. It's one of his major themes, a remnant. But in order for us to understand a remnant, we need to talk about something that's, that's fundamental to the book. And this is going to take us on one of our first little sidelines. Not, not a long time, but it, it's an important foundational point to understand what's going to happen in this book and what he's talking about in future terms. In describing Israel... The Old Testament is always referring to an entity. Israel is a group, an entity, a nation. He is not, the Bible does not talk about individual Jews in the Old Testament when it talks about Israel. We, in our New Testament experience, 
know a personal relationship with Christ or with God through the Son. We speak on an individual basis. The nation of Gentiles did not come into the New Covenant. Individuals come into the New Covenant, and as they do, they become part of something we call the body of Christ. That is not the Jewish experience. In the Old Testament, the nation was brought into a covenant. That nation was accountable to the covenant. The nation has nothing to say with respect to any given individual. Now, what do I mean by that? How do I? Well, let's go back and let me show you a little bit of how the covenant came to be and why that's such an important issue. Because if you don't understand this properly, you really never understand what a remnant is properly in light of what he's teaching on that point. So when Israel was called as a nation to be a people, holy and set apart by God, they were to act together as a nation in that way to satisfy God, or they were going to fail together. It was all or none as a nation. So when he entered into the covenant, look at what God spoke. This is in Deuteronomy again. Sorry, I should have warned you we'd be going back. But if you're interested, it's Deuteronomy 29. Moses speaking the words of God to the nation of Israel. This is what he said. Deuteronomy 29, verse 10. And I want you to imagine in your mind the assembly of Israel. Whether every last person was standing there or not makes no difference. If you remember in the verses I read a moment earlier, he talked about, assemble to me the elders and the leaders of the tribes. Remember? So it is acceptable for God to enter into a covenant with a nation through their representatives. It did not require a vote. It did not require every last man, woman, and child have a say. The representatives of the nation spoke on behalf of the people. So whether this assembly now is just the leadership or it's the entire nation makes no difference. But imagine a group. And Moses speaking in verse 10 says, You stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, and your officers, even all the men of Israel. And then he goes further. Your little ones, your wives, and the alien who is within your camps, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath which the Lord your God is making with you today, in order that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God just as he spoke to you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, listen to this. Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath. But both with those who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. What does he mean when he says, I'm entering into a covenant, but not just the ones that are here now, but also with ones who are not here now. Future members of the nation of Israel. Future members. The old covenant was with the nation of Israel, including with those who would come later. A good analogy for understanding what I'm saying is water. Israel, you could say, is like the water in Canyon Lake. Well, what little there is in Canyon Lake. On any given day, Canyon Lake contains certain specific molecules of water, which if it were possible to number them all, we could identify every one of them. Next year, a different set of molecules will be in the place of the ones that are there today, but it will still be called Canyon Lake. And likewise, on any given day in history, since the nation itself was brought into existence there has been a people group which could be called fairly the nation of Israel. That's true whether they had a land or whether they were outside their land, whether the nation was a political entity or not. In this day and age, there are certain people who we could rightly call the nation of Israel, as, as there has been since it was formed. But that's not to say that the same people have always been there, of course. But it's always been the nation. It's always been the people group in which God finds his covenant given to Moses. And with it comes all the blessings or curses, depending on the performance of that nation, of that group. Now, the concept of a covenant made with an entity rather than with individual people gives rise to a couple of concepts or to a couple of issues that we have to address. The covenant given to the nation of Israel was an all-or-nothing covenant. He didn't say, to the degree you obey, I will bless. He said, if you do all that I have commanded you today, all my statutes, all my ordinances, then I will. But if you do not do all my covenant, all my statutes, then I will. It's an all-or-nothing proposition to the entire entity. So if perfect, universal obedience is the requirement of the old covenant given to Israel, then how could Israel have ever expected to meet its terms? Can even one person on their own keep that covenant if you understand the Ten Commandments properly? The answer is no. So how is it that he could expect an entire nation, not just in one day, but in all, day, in all time, to keep it perfectly? 
Well, the obvious answer is they couldn't. Paul says this in Galatians 3, 3.17. He says, what I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, later meaning after the giving of the Abrahamic covenant, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. This covenant given to Moses 430 years after one came through Abraham did not replace this one. So he says, this one was not intended to become what this was or replace what this was. He says, for if the inheritance, we're talking about the eternal salvation inheritance, if it was based on law, well then it's no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Well then why the law then? In that verse, verse 19 of chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul just asked the question that I certainly hope came to your mind right about the point where I said it was not possible for Israel to keep the law God gave to them. You would have immediately, I hope, thought to yourself, well then why did he give them that law? Paul says in verse 19 of chapter 3 of Galatians, why the law then? It was added, meaning you have this one already, it was added because of transgressions, because of sin, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, meaning Moses, until the seed would come to whom the promises had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on a law. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was to be later revealed. Therefore, the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now, there's a lot we could have said there, and perhaps not every verse I read makes you know, natural sense, and that's fine. A good study of Galatians will solve that problem. We just don't have time for it. But on the point that I'm addressing now through Isaiah, on an individual level, again, if we move outside the entity and start talking about a given person, a Jew who lived on a certain day somewhere in the history of the nation of Israel, to that individual, Paul just said, the law saved no one. It was never given to save an individual. Nevertheless, a nation, a group of people, over a whole period of time, was called to obey it. And Paul says, in that tutor, the lesson being learned to the individual was, I can't rely on this law to save me. I need someone else's help. I need God's help. That's the individual lesson you learn having been under the law. But folks, even if a given individual in Israel on a given day came to that understanding by the power of the Holy Spirit and came to know that a Messiah was required, whether or not that happened to any given individual never changed the fact that for the nation they have this requirement to keep the law. It wasn't keep the law until every one of you figures out there's a better way. It was keep the law. Not so that an individual in the group would be saved. That's not the point of my giving you this law. Now we'll take time in Isaiah to understand more about why then it was given what its effect was on the individual. I don't want to kind of turn all that over in one night. But I want to set up this principle first that the law as it was given and that God is now judging them against in Isaiah was a law for universal performance for the entire entity, all or none. It was given to reveal the unrighteousness of men and in that revealing of your unrighteousness drive you to a solution called Christ. The second concept that is raised by this idea of an entity entering into a covenant with God is that the Old Testament speaks to a nation under the terms of the Old Testament in such a way that it's clear that they cannot perform it, which then naturally gives rise to the question if in a faithful response to God, a given individual does their level best to obey God's commandments because in faith they desire to please and serve Him. What about that person? For example, how are they going to be treated in light of how the entity as a whole is failing at the covenant? Or even on an individual basis, for that matter. Since we know no man can keep the law perfectly apart from Christ, how is that individual's attempts going to be uh, measured on their behalf? What is the effect for that individual? A remnant are those who know the Lord truly and follow Him faithfully, endeavoring to keep the terms of the covenant to the best of their ability. Scripture says in other places, which I won't go to tonight, there's always a remnant. There always has been, always will be a remnant. 
In other words, faithful Israel never dies out. And God will find special mercy and protection for them, but yet they will themselves at times be caught up in the judgment against the entity. So, for example, Caleb and Joshua, faithful men who followed God and heard Him and endeavored to please Him, they wandered into the desert 40 years like the rest of them. Daniel, led into captivity with Nebuchadnezzar, just like the rest of them, but faithful. Elijah, suffered in the droughts that his own word prophesied would come to an unfaithful Israel. On and on and on. Okay, Their personal faith as a remnant did not preclude God's judgment from affecting them because of the overall covenant with the nation. We call those that honor and God's word and obey him the remnant. And Isaiah talks frequently about God preserving a remnant. We've already seen a reference now in verse 9 alluding to God preserving a remnant. He's going to make this a major theme of the book. And he gives significant attention to how the nation of Israel will eventually be forced to meet its obligations. Folks, that's where the eschatology of this comes in. Why does tribulation exist? We always talk about when does it happen? Where does the rapture happen with respect to the tribulation? We always talk around the issue, but hardly anyone ever asks the fundamental question. Why did God have to have a tribulation in the first place? Why didn't he just come back and be done with it? Because God promised it has to happen under the Old Covenant. Which immediately tells you who's the audience for tribulation. Israel, the Jews, and we'll talk. Isaiah, more than any other prophet, reveals why there must be a tribulation, what its purpose is for, and who is for. And it comes down to this issue of the covenant, God's attention to keeping his word in the covenant, which means if you don't do these things, I've got to bring all these calamities. He says, I'm going to keep my word. So he does what he says he's going to do to Israel, and in the midst of it, preserves a remnant. So both of those themes will come out as we look through this, this book. What does a remnant, by the way, imply? The very word itself implies what? A minority of some larger group. So, in contrast to the remnant, we will always have amidst the remnant or around the remnant, the Israel who is rebellious. They give no attention to the old covenant or the attention they give is totally wrong. They seek to make the covenant about self-righteousness, pharisaical kinds of following, if you know what I'm referring to. They seek to make themselves righteous through performance and they misuse the covenant. Now, what do you think? If that group were listening to Isaiah's words right now, what do you think they're thinking as Isaiah is rattling off God's displeasure with them? Certainly they don't agree with this assessment of who they are and, and how they're not pleasing God. So, to that group, look what God says next in Isaiah. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers. See the rulers there? The reference to the leadership? You rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, goats, and lambs. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. We're talking here about formal forms of worship. A kind of formality to worship that is devoid of true heart worship. And this is very contemporary. I mean, it's always been contemporary, but it's no less contemporary today. They first multiplied their sacrifices. So we're talking about quantity. Then you see that they sacrificed the fat of fed cattle. We're talking about quality. They take the best cattle. They do a lot of them. So they have this top-notch quality of their sacrifices. And then, he says, these people expected that this pious, self-serving, empty, ritualistic performance would impress others and ultimately God. Does that sound familiar? You could think of places you could go where there's a lot of pomp and circumstance to the way they perform their worship. It's done with a high style, no no expenses spared, and it's completely empty and self-serving. Because that's what men do. When they lack the truth, they make up for it in style. Often the most honest worship is found in a home church where they have nothing more than the barest of things to work with, but everything about it is honest because what's there to do it for otherwise? You're not, not going to impress anybody, so why do it if it's not honest and heartfelt? On the flip side, if it's an empty shell and an act, you better make it a good act so at least I get something out of it. So at least my flesh is pleased in it. 
And I'm not saying one is a perfect rule. I'm not saying every big expensive production is without heart or that every small gathering is true. What I'm saying, though, is there is a tendency for, human, for, the, for the sin of man to work in that way, that when we tend to make it big and flashy, it's to replace the genuine need to worship with heart. It's a compensating factor in many cases. Not always, but it can be. And not necessarily to everyone in the group. Some would enter into a large group and be very honest and genuine. But what I'm saying is the tendency is for those who do not have the real thing to seek the large show because it replaces what they don't have. And I tell you that from experience. I had a small church start in my home at one point. And when you've got 10 or 12 people who don't know what they're doing and it's obvious and you're an unbeliever, you don't spend, spend any time in that setting because there's absolutely nothing to feed your flesh in that moment. You, you, you are totally repelled by it. Unless you fall to your knees, repent, and believe, there's nothing that you're going to find interesting in that group for any length of time. He's talking to a group here who have done that with what he gave them. And they have made a big, circ- a big show out of what they're doing. And then he says to them, I take no pleasure in all of this because why? In verse 13, at the end of verse 13, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. It's the sin of an unfaithful heart brought into the assembly. I see you for who you are and I don't abide in it. Last two verses and we can close. Verse 16, he says, Wash yourself, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan and plead for the widow. He says there is an opportunity here and here's the contrast. Rather than come with your formalist formalism of worship that is false and disingenuous and hypocritical, instead, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. And you wouldn't have to go very far in Scripture to draw the parallel, right? Wash yourself is, in personal terms, repentance, right? And make yourself clean. What does it mean to be made clean? A saving faith in Christ is the moment of our justification. So we can fairly say that as we believe, we are made clean before God. But look what must follow after that. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. You see, you can't clean up the unbeliever and then save them. You must first repent and believe, and then the cleaning up begins by the work of the Holy Spirit. Then cease to do evil, which is a choice for future living. I I now make my decisions differently. Then he says, learn to do good. Now here's an interesting point. The believer has to be taught what is to do good in contrast to what the flesh would previously have wanted to do, which was the evil they're putting aside. Seek justice, which he then defines. He defines it as, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Now, have you heard those phrases before anywhere? Does that ring a bell in your mind? Remember, he's describing, in contrast to false religion, what is the true religion that knows God? It starts with faith, a repentance and faith, It moves into a change of life because of faith to include a putting aside of evil and a picking up of what is good. And then he says, at the last step, having kind of moved through these progressively, you begin to seek justice in the world. What is it to seek justice in the world? To seek true outward shows of religion. Contrast that with the hypocrisy of what they were doing in the temple. What should I be doing outwardly now? He uses these three interesting examples. Why these three? Does it ring a bell, as I said? Where does it ring a bell? Where have you heard someone else say, this is what true religion is? James. In the New Testament, James 1, and I believe James is referring back to Isaiah as he says this. James knows as he says this, it rings bells in any Jew's mind who would have studied Isaiah. They know he's referring back to what Isaiah called the nation to do at an earlier time. James chapter 1, verse 27. He says, pure, undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Does that not sound familiar? Now, we will take that if we're not careful and use it to define the entirety of what it means to be a biblically correct Christian. Do you see, though, that James is just making a reference back to Isaiah? And with that, he's intending to incorporate all of Isaiah's message around this point, not just this one line. He's just, it's just a way of referencing Isaiah. He's saying it begins with a repentance and a making of yourself clean by faith and then a turning up from evil and then at its height it brings you to a point where you can actually be useful to God in seeking justice in the world. But it's predicated on the foundations. It's not a means of working, in other words, to achieve these things. It is the natural outflowing of what has already been done in your heart. All right, that's enough for one night. Let's go in prayer. Heavenly Father,
Father, for all the words that have been spoken tonight, I pray that it is you who has communicated to the hearts of those who've heard. And in the way that only you can do, Father, I pray that your words are few and powerful. Spoken to each of us individually by the Spirit of where we may learn and use what we've heard in a new way in our life. Father, thank you again for the chance to start this study. We pray for the stamina and the patience and the dedication to complete what we've started, that it may do a full and proper work in our heart over the months to come. Lead us home tonight safely, Father, and we pray you'd bring us back next week. In Jesus' name, amen.